Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Genesis 28 is where we'll pick up tonight. Uh, I always like to review whenever we're at this, where we're at. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the history of the planet and what's going on. And then in chapter 12, we transition to the history of the promise through Abraham. So the Bible focuses in on this one family. It's not the only family that follows Jehovah because there's the whole city under the priest Melchizedek. So there's this other city out there that follows Jehovah. And we've seen two instances where someone in Abraham's family has gone back to get a wife from the family of uh, Nahor. So there's Abraham's brothers and cousins. There's other groups of people around the planet that are following Jehovah. But the Bible focuses on Abraham and what he's doing and his focus. So we've seen that. And then when Abraham's name gets changed, we've seen that the book of Hebrews references this as a typology of you know, the history of the world and how Christians are going to be and what they're going to do. So we're now on the third generation of that building of a nation, and we're still not a lot closer to a nation. And it kind of hit me where they're having one or two kids here. They're not exactly nation building yet. And that's what's going to start to happen when Jacob becomes Israel and has 12 kids and bam, now we suddenly start getting nation. Uh, But that hasn't really happened. Abraham and Sarah, you know, only had two and, and, uh, and, and we, we see that uh, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, uh, Ishmael actually gets separated from the blessing, even though he starts to build a nation over here. Um, so what we have is this family of Jacob and Esau. We're down to two people again. Uh, and Esau has continuously not focused on God stuff. And uh, Jacob has. He keeps pursuing it all the time. So that's where we're at. Um, And it's important, all this setup, it's really important because all of this is precedent so that when we get to David and Solomon and we get to Jesus and we get to Paul and the disciples, there's no mistaking what God's intention was here. And I think that's why some of this is really neat. And part of what I talked about with our friend at church was just how beautiful it is that God tells his stories through our lives. And I don't think that all these things that Jacob and Esau are doing and whatnot become this perfect typology of believers in the church or new new believers in new fellowship, but he's also weaving that right onto their lives. And I think that's kind of cool. I'm going to start, if we could go back to the very end of chapter 27, uh, starting in verse 43, it says, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise and flee to my brother Laban in Haran. So this is... Isaac talking to Jacob, uh, basically setting up chapter 28, you need to go. And in 44, it says, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring him you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? So 
clearly the family thinks that Esau is going to get over this in a couple days, but he never calls for Jacob. He's going to be there for 20 years. Um, and what was supposed to just blow over never actually blows over. Um, or is, I'm sorry, is this Rebecca talking to? Okay, thanks. So um, Rebecca's saying, get away from here, flee. Um, she kind of says what you've done to him when really it was all her plan. Uh, and they, they get there and they send them away. Um, the reason I say Isaac is because Isaac's going to send Jacob away here in chapter 28. Um, so then Isaac called. Uh, the word called there is kara in the Hebrew. It means to proclaim. So Isaac has already given a blessing to Jacob in private in the tent with the savory meats. Um, but he's going to do this really publicly. So when it says, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, this isn't private. That word calling means to like call an assembly or bring everyone together. So he's going to pr- proclaim something in the public. Um, so he gave him this blessing in private. Now he's going to make this blessing a little more public. Um, so verse one, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not, uh, and there's three instructions here. The first one is, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Abram, which means the plains, uh, to the house of Bethuel, your your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And the reason he's sending them back to Laban is because they serve Jehovah too. And they're living under this code of conduct uh, that's very similar. So he he knows that those daughters will be... um, Uh, pure. They won't be messing around. They won't be part of weird pagan temple rituals. uh, And he'll have a, uh, an innocent woman for his son to marry. Um, And it makes you think that like at this, again, it makes you think Jacob's like a teenager getting sent off to go find a wife. He's no teenager. He's in his seventies right now. He's kind of, by our standards, he's an old man. He would, he believed that love could wait. Right. And that was an old campaign when I was young. Love can wait. Um, and he was not about to marry someone if he didn't feel like God was telling him to. But he's got his father telling him that now it's time to go do this, so he's going to do it. Verse 3, Isaac gives a blessing. May God Almighty bless you. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Isaac doesn't give the blessing. Notice carefully that he asks for God to bless him. So there's Isaac blessing him, which is one thing to have a blessing from a human. But he's actually praying, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of people and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. Chapter 27, the blessing only had to do with the earthly benefits. He blesses him, if you remember, with food, drink, and all the mastery of the household. Isaac held back this real spiritual blessing or... God didn't tell him to give that blessing at that time, but God is telling him to do it now. This sets up the rest of the Bible, and God seems to be, at some point you're going, wow, that sounds a lot like the blessing that Abraham was given, and it sounds very similar to the blessing that Isaac was given, and you're right in that they're almost identical. Uh, We shouldn't miss the fact that this blessing is really clear. The God Almighty here is El Shaddai, the Hebrew, And it's kind of interesting because it says, may God Almighty bless you, may El Shaddai bless you. And El Shaddai would be God the powerful. Um, And powerful in the sense that, and you got to believe Isaac, either he was fooled by the Jacob Esau thing with the wearing of the goat skills, 
or he kind of knew what was going on, which is another way to read that. But either way, Isaac's got to be thinking, wow, God's really working this out regardless of what we humans do. He's got a plan. He's figuring it out. And El Shaddai would imply God the powerful that may that God bless you because he's going to work this out no matter what happens. So Isaac knows that in part Jacob's leaving this household because Esau's planning to kill him. And he's kind of praying, I just hope God works this out too. And that as bad as this looks for you, that something kind of good could happen. Um, another side thought, and this is just me being a geek. I think it's interesting that now we've seen two of the patriarchs. Isaac got married when he was in his 40s. And Jacob's going to get married in his 70s. I think it's interesting that rather than getting married and doing it wrong and getting the wrong spouse, we've seen two biblical characters that wait well into adulthood to get married because they're not told who the right person is. So in the absence of some clear, this is the right person, they wait and they wait a long time for it. Um, And I think that's an interesting thing because most societies try to marry people off in their teens or 20s, depending on what era you're in and what culture you're in. Um, and in the Bible, we see these initial characters waiting a really long time for marriage and basically being single people well into their 70s. Um, let's look at the three commands that he's given. Command number one, don't marry somebody from here, and which is this idea of in the world. And again, uh, Lizzie, if you're thinking about marriage or not marriage, I didn't, we just go in order, so it's not like you handpick messages or anything like that. So I got to say that too. Um, it is not okay for God consistently through the Bible for godly people to marry ungodly people. It's never okay. And it's really important to God, and that's the first command that Isaac gives him. And I thought it was worth unpacking this a little bit because a lot of you are either not married or married or in the middle of getting married or things like that. We're just in that kind of group. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And in case this idea of it's important who you marry, if you're going to marry, it's really key what that looks like. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, and I'm going to start in verse 14, makes it crystal clear. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you're of the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Those are words that come straight from these patriarchs. Wherefore, come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. So where Esau has already grabbed two Hittite wives, Jacob has not. And he's really following that idea of, I'd rather be unmarried than marry somebody I don't feel like God's telling me to marry. That started back in Genesis 6, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they were fair and they took wives, all of which they chose. And there's kind of a, we didn't really take that when we looked at that passage before, but part of the problem with that whole thing is they were starting to pick people to marry that they weren't being told to marry. Yoking is an important biblical concept. You would think yoking is just a yoke that you might make or, or play on words, or you might see it once or twice, but it's in the Bible a surprising number of times. And you see yoking come up as a key concept on 
how we relate to Christ. We see Christ using marriage as an image for how we relate that we're the bride of Christ, that that whole marriage thing is an important symbol for God. Um, and it speaks to a deeper truth. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest in your souls. The key to yoking with the right people is not to have some sort of weird, arbitrary God control system in your life, but it's so that you can have rest. It's so that you can be peaceful. Marrying the right person, and I'm speaking as just a witness to this, you pick the right person and your life is better for decades. You pick the wrong person and think of all the people we know where that's caused misery and heartache and heartbreak and, and trials in their life that don't need to be there. But you pick the right person and it's really joyful. You have a support. No matter what you go through in life, you can turn to them and say, what do you think of this? And, and you're yoking with the right person. And the first person we should yoke with before our spouse on earth should be to do what Jesus says. Yoke with him first and have that marriage with Jesus where you're consulting with him on everything you do and how you do it. The yoke is the symbol also in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you. It, it, God doesn't put it on us. We have to submit to the yoke. Uh, an oxen, when he goes under a yoke, has to bow their head and submit to that yoke and say, I'm going to take your law, I'm going to take your commands for my life, and I'm going to accept those. And I'm just going to take those into my life too. So when you take on a yoke, you're submitting to the work of what you need to do. Um, and then when we see the marriage stuff, and, and you'll see all this as you go to the many weddings you'll go to, marriage is supposed to be where the spouses submit to one another, right? You've seen those passages and you submit, you say, I'm going to take the burden of this other human being and I'm going to submit to them and they're going to submit to me. And you're basically submitting means to bow your head to take on the work and you work at marriage. And I think the world really has a quirky image of marriage being this spinning emotional romance thing, which it can be, right? But it's not the core of it. The core of marriage is to work together, that you're going to take that yoke upon two creatures and you're going to do it. And if they're unequally yoked, it's hard for both of them. It, the, the, the yoke will chaff the shoulders. It'll cause misery and pain. But if they're both going the same direction and they're both working together and they're both spiritually at the same place, then you're working together. You're doing that work of Christ at the same time. You can't really serve Jesus if you marry or yoke with somebody who doesn't want to serve Jesus too. And there's no such thing as, I think, uh, missionary weddings where you're trying to get that spouse to come closer to Christ because you love Christ. You really have to both want to go that direction or you're fighting each other right off the day one. So that's what Isaac is saying to Jacob. Marry someone who's going the same direction as us, as a family. Verse five, so Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padam Aram, the plains, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. So Padam Aram is in very, it's north of what we today call Israel. It's up towards Lebanon, Syria, and they even, you know, started have started using those terms. Verse 5 is an editorial transitional verse from Moses. We know that because he's using terms that would have made sense in Moses' generation, but haven't quite set into place at this period. And there's a key shift here in, by the editor, and don't read over this because it's, it's key. Notice that it's not Esau and Jacob anymore. They flipped them. So with that blessing, the ranking actually got changed. So it's not birth order anymore. It's now Jacob is the birthright, and he has the birthright, and the Bible records it that way. 
it's official. Um, verse six, Esau saw that Jacob had blessed, Esau saw that Isaac had, ja- so Esau, I kind of like the movie theater thing comes up in my head and I imagine this like a movie and there's kind of Esau in the corner with the shade covering half his face and he hears Esau giving Jacob this fear and all the camels are excited to go and they got everything piled on and then there's this beautiful moment and then it, the camera pans over to Esau in the corner going, and he's overhearing all of this being said. Um, so Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob. And first of all, Esau saying, Isaac said there was no more blessings. Remember that conversation between Isaac and Esau? And Esau's probably thinking, he said he didn't have any more blessings, and now he's giving more blessings. And my goodness, but that's in part because Isaac is, I think, communicating what God's telling him with the blessings. So he saw that he had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padamaran to take himself a wife from there, and that he blessed him, giving him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Verse 7. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padamaran. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So those two Hittite women were not making anybody happy, in part because they're bringing in Hittite, in all likelihood, they're bringing in idols and they're bringing in Hittite worship and both of their parents aren't happy that they married that way. This is common throughout all generations and all cultures. Sometimes parents get upset with who you pick for your spouse. So Esau went to Ishmael. Uh, at this point, Ishmael is not the person. It would have been the place or the city. Uh, and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wife he's had. So Esau is watching all of this, and he's still jealous and notice that instead of repentance, he just goes off and does his own thing again. And he's doing it wrong because he's not paying attention to the fact that Ishmael was set aside from the inheritance and the blessing. And Ishmael was blessed in his own right. We saw that in the Bible. God has still honored and blessed Ishmael, but he's not part of this plan. Um, so it's really, I at this point I'm reading Esau and I'm thinking this is so sad. This is a son who wants to make his parents happy, and he just can't find a way to do it in his own strength. And he just doesn't get it. He's never tended to the spiritual. So when people are blessed in the spirit, he never understands why. He just doesn't get it. And maybe I shouldn't feel sad for Esau at this point, but I kind of do, because he's been foolish, and he keeps making the same mistakes, and he has no clue at this situation. He's trying, but he just does it wrong. He doesn't see Jacob's obedience and think, wow, maybe I should repent and be obedient. He sees Jacob's obedience and then he says, I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And he's just, he misses it. Another thing Esau, remember we, we were talking about when, when, when Isaac said, Esau, what blessings can I give you? And he just couldn't come up with anything. And you're thinking, man, that's so sad. This is another situation. If he would have just gone to Isaac and said, what can I do to make things right? and just ask for advice, but he doesn't. He takes his own initiative, does his own thing, and messes it up. What if Esau, so these are the questions I ask when I go through. What if Esau knew the will of God, that Jacob would be the first, and he just submitted to it? What if Esau just had humility? And what, how much differently would he have been blessed? Because it would have started with saying, Jacob, I recognize you're the better person and you're God's pick for running this family and taking the inheritance. So I'm just going to submit to you. How can I help you? What if he acted more like Jonathan did with David? And how blessed was Jonathan? Like we read that story and we see what 
a blessing Jonathan was to his brother David. They weren't actual brothers, but brother in the faith. What if Esau would have just done that? But he can't do it because Esau is a person of pride, and we saw in Hebrews that there's bitterness in his heart. He's not trying to please God, he's trying to please his dad. And that's a mistake. Even though his dad's a godly man, this is advice for my kids, never try to please your parents. Try to please God. And you'll please your godly parents. But if you just try to please your parents, you're going to likely screw it up. Because there's nothing you can do to do it right. And your parents are always going to think you should do something slightly different, and then it hurts more when that happens. But you should try to please God. God never in the Bible will use selfish people. He never uses the prideful people, and he never uses people who try to serve themselves, which is the danger of our message to young people today, that it's all about you. Because we don't see any biblical evidence where, where God takes people that are serving themselves and uses them for his kingdom. He always uses people that are kind of at the end of their rope, and they say, I have nothing left to give God, so I'll give you whatever I got. Take what I have, use it, and bless it, and then God does amazing things. Typology. Where's Jesus in all this, right? With Rebecca, if she was the bride, we now see that there's a son, Jacob, and a son, Esau. We saw part of the bride. So if the bride is the church, we see that there are some people in the church. And I should go back to typology. Typology is this idea that everything we read in the New Testament was an image God wanted us to see for our own lives. That there's a type or a behavior here that we should see. So if Rebecca is representing the church and she has two children, then we should recognize that there are some people in the church that all they want is God's blessing, Jacob. And we see some people in the church like Esau that they don't really invest in the spiritual and they don't really care about the spiritual. They just want the attention and the stuff that the church has to offer. They want to be recognized, but they don't really have that spirit or that heart. And what causes that usually causes frustration and then you got Rebecca, who's trying to make everything happen and control things. Um, God chooses the Jacob. He chooses the one that may screw up. He lies to his dad, but he's repentant and he obeys. And that's the one God's going to carry his blessing through. And in the church today, we have people of all different personality types. Some of them are being blessed by God and some of them aren't, which is why the church is so frustrating. Is because we have to be in these environments with all these different kinds of people. Um, and the church is human. So verse 10, now, the word now is we're transitioning to a new story. Jacob went out from Beersheba and towards Haran. Basically, that says he went from the far south of what's Israel today to far, far north. He's almost up by Turkey. Uh, so he came to a certain place that stayed, and he stayed there all night because the sun had set and he took one of those, one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and lay down to sleep. Okay, the question here is, why are you putting a stone by your head? And my first thought was maybe he laid on it like a pillow and he's just a hardcore. Um, but go back to the first few words in the sentence in verse 11. So he came to a certain place, not just any place, a certain place. If we're going north towards Haran and we're between Beersheba and Haran and we're about halfway between those two, the only certain place that we know of that is that Valley of Megiddo, that one that we had the picture of. It's the place where Abraham first heard from God. It's the place that Isaac has gone to. This is the place where that kind of thing happens. Uh, if you want to reference note that, it's in chapter 12, that Abraham is coming north towards this area, and it's the region of the edge. It's when he first walked into the land of Canaan and God talked to him. Bam. So we're in that spot. 
Then to Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. It's the place in that northern area. As far as the terebinth trees of Morah and then the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abraham. So this is the first place that Abraham established public worship of Yahweh and God. It's the first place that God spoke to Abraham. This is the place that Jacob's going to name Bethel, the house of God, and we'll see why here by the end of tonight. But in chapter 12, right now it's just the place. It's a certain place. It doesn't have its name yet. At its head then, the stone is not a pillow. It's at his head. And if you really, a lot of historians believe that this is what people would do for protection. If you have to camp at night, you camp with your, it's kind of like when you go into a saloon and you take a seat at a table. I joke with Grant. I'd never like to have my back to the door because what if a bad guy comes in? Like, I want to see what's coming in and out of that door and keep track of it, or I'm really uncomfortable. I just feel nervous. And it's the same thing. If you go to sleep, what if bandits show up? You don't want them to come at your head. You want them to come at your feet so that you can get up and react. So putting a stone at your head is there. And that makes a lot of sense. Jacob's 70, but he's never left home before. So what's the first time you left home? Were you nervous? Were you scared? Was there a little part of uncertainty there? Or like me, maybe you were just happy to get the heck out of there. Um, But Jacob is a home guy. We know that from before. His bro's trying to kill him, so he knows he's got a likelihood that Esau could be chasing him down and killing him. And where does he put his trust? He puts his trust in a rock. When times get tough, where do you put your trust? Where do we put our trust? Jacob puts it in a rock, and that could be an image for Jesus, the, the cornerstone of our faith. But I think in this case, it's more that he's just trusting in the world. He's trusting in that stone more than God. Um, God's made a promise to him, so he doesn't need the stone. Um, and of course, we're looking at a, the journey of a person who's kind of new, living out his faith for himself. He's been under his father's roof, but now he's on his own. He's like a new believer, and that can be scary. He lays down. He's traveled a significant difference. So the distance he's traveled to get to there from there he almost had to be running. So if you kind of figure out the mileage and distance on foot, he either was riding very fast uh, cooperative camels or he was at a full-on run to get this far in one night. He was trying to put some distance between himself and Esau. Um, So he's exhausted, he's tired, he's got to go to sleep. Uh, He doesn't say that he ate or he made a meal. It just says he went to bed. Um, So this is a demotion for Jacob. That's the other thought. He was in charge of the whole empire that had grown under Abraham and gone to Isaac. It was a wealthy empire. We know they have gold, they have silver, they have holdings, they have animals. And now he's on his own, so he's been cast out in some way. And again, biblically, this is consistent. He's gone from being master of the little moving city to now being all by himself, and this is where God talks to him for the first time. So it's kind of a cool thing. So when you're in tough times and tough moments, start looking for God, because that's when God tends to talk to you. Verse 12, then he dreamed, and this is one of the more famous dreams in the Bible, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth. The word ladder actually means more of a staircase. Um, It's not like a single person thing, and we'll see that. And its top reached to the heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. 
So this is the first, uh, Jacob's going to encounter God seven times. And this is the first one. Um, and if you're into numerology, seven is significant too. The latter, the word sulam in the Hebrew means, implies more of a staircase or a passageway. Uh, a large sulam in a city would have been if the city was built on some sort of hill, the streets would actually have staircases built into the streets. And, and that would be a sulam. So you would have those kinds of things. The other staircases in that kind of city are, you would have houses that were multiple levels and the staircase would be outside the house that would take you up to the top of the roof, but also the entrance to the next building. Ascending and descending implies it's big enough for traffic. Um, and there's a neat image here. It implies that God is constantly doing business with the earth, that there's this mediated thing going on with angels and messengers and Jacob's getting this glimpse of a spiritual reality. So you want to try to imagine what is it exactly that he sees? And when you see things, how do you describe them? And this helps with a lot of the weird prophecy. Like if you don't have words for things, how do you describe these things happening? Um, Jesus also mentions this idea of um, ascending and descending in the book of John. If you remember this passage, Nathaniel's super impressed because Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, dang, you must be God. And Jesus says, wow, if that's all it takes to get you to think I'm God, just wait. And then he says in John 1:51, truly, truly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder or a staircase, but upon the son of man, on me that Jesus is that mediating passage between there. And to a traditional Jew, that sentence would have been totally heretical because Jesus is calling himself the ladder that Jacob saw, that Jacob saw Jesus and Jesus was this way in which angels were able to make that commute between the different places. Um, so if you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, Jesus is the way the truth and the life and that passageway between heaven and earth is Jesus and we're okay with that um, so Jesus is telling Nathaniel basically he's the mediator um, he does a lot more than see you under a, a fig tree he also is the path for you to talk to God Jacob has the blessing um, and it's really the beginning of God dealing directly with him I think this is cool because whoever has the blessing God talks to and their wife because we've seen God talk to Sarah and we've seen God talk to Rebecca um, but until, I mean, he's gone 70 years and God hasn't talked directly to Jacob, but he gets the blessing and he gets cast out of his home and now he's got nothing and he's sleeping on the ground. And suddenly God is like, well, you're my guy now. So you got nothing. So we're starting from nothing. So you can't just take for granted what your parents gave you or what you had. Uh, you get to start with nothing. And that's now you know that God's going to build anything in your life. And Jacob's going to get that too. We'll see that. Um, it's why God's blessing is so important is because with God's blessing, we can be sleeping on the ground with nothing, but we got God's blessing. Without God's blessing, you can have all the inheritance because Esau's kind of taken over back in the tents, um, but he's got nothing at the same time. He's got the whole world and it's gained him nothing. And Jacob's going to have the promises of God and it's going to gain him everything. Now we have three witnesses. In Jewish tradition, the number of witnesses is really important. But we've got Abraham as a witness to God. We've got Isaac as a witness to God. And now we've added the third major patriarch, which is Jacob, who has this witness to God. He's seen God. He's talked to God. Um, and we have this mediator that does it for us. So some people call this a Christophany. Some people just call it a theophany. 
Um, so did he see Christ at this dream, or did he just have God talking to him directly? And that's you can decide that for yourself. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. And you could read that and say, well, that's not much because I, I only take up a few square feet of space. But he's talking about the land of Canaan, of course. He's still in Canaan at this point. Um, I like how God speaks to Abraham like, like he's his father. So I'm the Lord God of Abraham, your father. And obviously Isaac was Jacob's father. But the way God sees it, Abraham's the father of this whole thing. He's the first of faith. Verse 14, also your descendants shall be at the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north to the south. And you and your seed and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go. You don't need to be afraid and you don't need a rock by your head. I'll keep you wherever you shall go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. This is one of those verses that you memorize for the downtimes in your life. As much as a downer as the last week was, this is a huge, like, if God's saying that to Jacob and through Jesus we have the same blessing, then God's saying that to you too. If you've taken on the yoke of Jesus Christ, then he will keep you wherever you go and he will bring you back to this land. And for I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. He's got a plan for your life. He's spoken that into your heart probably did the day you said, I'm going to serve Jesus and that he's going to do that. It's just a matter of time. And what does that look like? And the joy is watching it happen and realizing you didn't have much to do with making that happen. What a promise. How confirming. That's more than just mercy for Jacob in his sin and everything else, because Jacob's not perfect at this point. That's an abounding blessing that he's been promised. Um, it's almost word for word, the same promise he made to Abraham. Um, which I think is cool if you think of these as different scrolls that got gathered together by Moses. So those scrolls are either being copied from one to the other or God's actually really consistent and they're just writing down what God said. And I like to think of the latter, that this is kind of an evidence that God's the same person is speaking to three different people and they're getting recorded there. So no longer does Jacob have to have trust that his dad is telling him the truth, his earthly dad. He's now hearing straight from God for himself. So it's not his dad's faith anymore. Typology-wise, we have a new believer. We have somebody that is directly hearing from God. They're new in their faith. And one way to paint Jacob is that he's this kind of swindling, weaselly guy, and I'll give you those passages too. Another way to paint it is he's brand new, and he's going to make the mistakes that brand new believers often make, and he's going to learn from those mistakes. So I'm going to give you both perspectives on that. Um, at some point, your relationship with God has to be your own, or it's not a real journey. It just never got started. And that's the danger of having Christian parents. It's the curse of having Christian parents, is that you just live under their faith and you never start your own journey. And um, I, I think that's one of the things that at some point you have to shake that off. It's healthy to shake it off. I hope you don't shake it off and go into like Jehovah's Witnesses or some weird heresy, but you have to shake off the way your parents lived out their faith and live it out your own way. And I think in that, your parents are really proud of you. And as a parent, trust me in saying that. We want to see our children build their own journeys, even if it disagrees with what we think they should be doing. Because we always have opinions about what they think we should be doing. 
So the blessing of the Messiah is going to come from the Jewish race. Jacob is now the carrier of that blessing. He's the one that the Lord's going to put his plan into. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome. That word means full of dread. So I don't know why they used awesome there, because it's not the way we use the word awesome today. Oh, awesome. It's not like that. It's how much dread is in this place? How serious is this place? Oh my goodness. This, none other than the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. This is Bethel, the house of God. I didn't know it. Jacob was thinking back, thinking God was back at his house. I wonder if Jacob thought that when Isaac sent him away, that he was leaving God, like that God was temporal. God hung out with Abraham and, the, and Isaac in the tents, but when you left the tents, God wasn't there anymore. So I think it's one of those kind of new believer things where you realize, wow, God's kind of everywhere. You can't run from God. And we almost take that thought for, for granted, but Jacob was kind of just realizing it. And then the gate of heaven. So he's thinking, wow, this is where God talked to Abraham, and now I'm here, and I'm seeing this thing where God is moving and the angels are going and there's a staircase to heaven and he's hearing Led Zeppelin songs in his head and all that stuff's going on. And he has to like recognize that and see this. So also remember he's talking to himself because <laughs> there's nobody else here that we're aware of or that the Bible has told us is here. So he's just kind of talking to himself and at some point he has to jot this down on a scroll. So this is Jacob then reporting on his own thoughts after the dream that Moses would have been taking from this uh, told off and including in the book of Genesis. So Jacob wants us to know that he's framing this in a certain way at this time. And this is probably elderly Jacob writing down what young Jacob thought at this first moment. So he said, how full of dread is this place? How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the stairway or the gate of heaven. John 10, 9, Jesus says, I'm the door. By me, if any man should enter, he shall be saved and shall go in and about and find pasture. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And this passageway thing is where a lot of people feel like Jesus came to Jacob in this dream and he's trying to give words to it. Verse 18, then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head. Remember the stone that was safety? And he set it up as a pillar and he pulled, poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, the house of God. But the name of the city had been Luz, which I looked that up. It means almond tree. So it's not that exciting. Previously, he took his former security and he used it as a memorial to God. I think new believers often do this. We take that thing that used to give us comfort and we give it up and we make it a memorial for God. I remember burning all of my music when I, because I had a bunch of ACDC and Metallica and stuff like, and I got saved and I kind of in my heart knew that stuff wasn't probably of God. So I like took it and I threw it away in a can and my friends and I were burning it. My friends thought I was crazy and I did it and I kind of just got rid of it. But I was like, I want to just have this memorial. I want to do something for my king right away when I got saved. And then I regretted because some of my U2 was in there. And then I had to like later on, I started repurchasing some of my favorite stuff. But as a new believer, why not go all in and do that kind of thing? Why not take that thing that used to give you safety and security and dedicate it to God and give it over to God? 
Anyways, I just thought that was kind of a nice thought. And the main thing is he's proclaiming it. He's setting it up. It had to have been a good-sized stone at this point if he can flip it over and it's now a pillar. And he had to be strong. So that image of Jacob as a weakling, this guy's moving. This won't be the first stone he moves tonight. Uh, verse 20, Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, then give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. And then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up as a pillar shall be a house, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. If you have nothing to start with, it's really easy to make vows to God and say, anything we do from here, God, I'm going to give you part of it. Um, because it's all God's at that point. God's blessed you with everything. And I, we did this with our kids even when they were five or six years old. We'd like say, Merry Christmas, here's a dollar. How are we going to get a dime and put that into the tenth thing? Because if you start really young with tithing, it never hurts through the rest of your life. It's only when you're an old person and you're used to getting all that income and then you start tithing, then it kind of hurts a little bit because you've gotten used to it. Um, so right at the beginning here, he's going to make this promise to God. If you start giving me stuff, I'll tithe stuff back to you, which I think God must think is kind of funny um, because God gives everything to us at some point. It's already a tradition. We saw that Abraham gave a tenth of his winnings from the war to Melchizedek, the priest. So he was already, uh, Abraham was tithing. So it's likely that Isaac was already tithing. And at this point, Jacob says, I'm going to start tithing too. Like, that's what I'm going to do. But he doesn't have anything to tithe at this point. He's just got his rock. Um, and this is before the law. So there's no rule. There's no mosaic law that he has to follow. He's tithing because he wants to. Remember the story where Jesus is excited about the lady that gives that coin that's a much larger percentage of what she can afford to give? It kind of hurts a little bit. And he's not impressed with the rich person who gives their tenth because there's a heart thing that's going on there, a heart of worship. And Jacob's primary reaction to seeing or meeting this image of this staircase to heaven um, is he wants to do something. And I think that's a really healthy first instinct for a believer to have. Um, however, it's immature. God doesn't do deals with us. And most believers figure that out early in their faith. We can't make a deal with God and say, God, if you help me win the lottery, then I'll give half of that lottery to the church or this ministry, or that sort of thing. And then you put in your stuff for the lottery, and you lose, and you realize, oh, maybe God doesn't respond to our deals because God's bigger than that. Um, but there's nothing wrong with it. It isn't, one way to interpret this is one of the things where people say, well, see now, Jacob, he's just a wheeler and dealer, and he's trying to play God, and he's trying to trick God and whatnot. I, that's one way to read it, and I, and I don't think it's a heretical way to read it or some sort of inappropriate way to read it. I just think when I read it and I try to meet Jacob mentally, I'm seeing a character here who just loves the Lord and wants to just give what he can. It's like when Shadow brings you a treat and he's super excited. Like he's like, oh, Alyssa, I'm happy to see you. Let me bring you my tennis ball and drop it at your feet. It's this offering that he gives because he's trying to show you, I love you and I will give you my tennis ball. And we as humans are really similar. It's like, I love you, God. I'll give you my whole music collection and you can have it, and I love you, God, and I'm going to get rid of this, or I'm going to tithe this, or I'm going to do that. And I think it's it's innocent, it's sweet, it's wonderful, but I don't see Jacob trying to be a weasel here. I just think he's trying to get to know God, and he's acting very new in his faith. Um, and he's trying to seek the blessing, 
and this is going to be consistent of Jacob throughout, is that he will consistently do it. Jacob's going to fail in this promise of giving the tenth. So he's making this deal with God that he won't keep his end up on, um, but at least he has a heart where he's offering it. Um, I don't think he's come to the point where he really appreciates what God is doing for him right here, but he's excited to have it. He's super blessed. Um, and now that he's met God for himself, he's got to take on the yoke and settle in and do the work. So remember the blessing of God was the inheritance of all this stuff that his dad had, but he's going to work for, depending on how you read the next chapter, either 14 years or 21 years, he's going to be a servant and he's going to be working basically as a bond servant under Laban and he's herding sheep and dealing with animals. So he is not the Lord of all he surveys for a very long time. Verse 1 of chapter 29. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Went on there in the Hebrew means to lift up. He gets up from this night of sleep and he's not scared, timid, intimidated, worried about Esau. He's lifted up and he is popping out of bed, doesn't even need coffee. And he's on his way and he came to the land it's a very, that came to is a very, he moved quickly, but it wasn't that he was running. It's that he was skipping kind of thing. It's much more happy kind of thing. So he's had this encounter with God. He's lifted up. He's ready to go. He's excited. Um, and that's very similar to how new Christians behave. There's this enthusiasm. They want to tell everybody about it. Um, and what does this look like? What are some of the things that happen to this new believer? In verse two, and he looked and he saw well in the field and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying down by it. For out of what the well, that, for out of that well, they watered the flocks. We know that from the stories of Abraham and the stories of Isaac. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Why would they have a stone? It's hot in Israel, so it keeps the water in the well and it doesn't evaporate as easy. So they keep a stone on it. It's a big stone. It would take a few shepherds, which is why you could have three whole flocks of sheep, but they're maybe waiting for one or two more shepherds because it's going to take a few people to move this stone. Now all the flocks would be gathered there and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and then put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. Um, so he returns to this place that his mom came from. Uh, he didn't have GPS. He didn't have maps. They didn't have highways. So he's got to feel like he's kind of blessed because this next conversation the first people he seems to encounter happen to be the right people. So way to go. He's got this, God's guiding him a little bit. Verse four, and Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we're from Haran. Um, so he's asking, am I in the right place? Verse two, then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. <laughs> Notice that we're going to find out Laban's kind of a weasel. And I think he actually is painted as a weasel. Notice they're not excited. They're not like, yeah, we know him. Like, that's really cool. They're like, yeah, we know him. <laughs> and it's this kind of unenthusiastic response, which should be a clue. But Jacob's really excited right now, and he doesn't pick up on the clue. Verse 6, so he said to them, is he well? And they said, he's well. Oh, look, his daughter Rachel's coming with the sheep. So change of topic. Yeah, that's his daughter right there. Go talk to her. Then he said, look. It's still high It's still high in the day. Is it not time for the cattle to be gathered together, water the sheep, and go feed them? All right. I want to say this gently, and, I, and again, I don't know how you all behave in your churches, so I have no idea how this works. 
but young believers do this all the time. They're super excited, they're ready to go, and the first thing they do is start telling other people how to do things, right? Think about this situation. Jacob's just some weird guy that walked up by himself and he's telling these shepherds how to do, hey, isn't it time to feed the sheep? Shouldn't you be doing that right now? Um, so he's ready and he's used to taking charge because he was taking charge for 70 years back in his home place. He's used to being the boss. So he comes in this new situation and it's, do they, not, I mean, is it like the shepherds don't know how to feed their sheep and they don't know how to do this job? What if Jacob never showed up? Would the whole herd have died? And, you know, it's one of the, like, so those are questions I think sometimes that you have to be graceful for with new believers because you're kind of like, you know, maybe you should just be blessed for a while and see how we do things for a little bit before you make those suggestions and bring those wonderful contributions and keep your enthusiasm while you do that. It's hard to do. Um, another way to read this is that Jacob is still trying to keep control of situations um, when he shouldn't be trying, that he's not actually acting in a in a godly way there. Um, but he's kind of, in verse 8 he says, um, but they said back to him, we can't until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled away the stone from the well's mouth and then we water the sheep. In other words, you don't want to leave the stone off the well for that long because the water will evaporate. So we want to take that stone off, water our animals, and then put the stone right back on. So we're kind of waiting. Another read on this is that these shepherds are being lazy as snot and they just don't want to move the stone by themselves. So they're waiting for other people to get there to make the job easier. The second read fits with Jacob's personality as kind of a hardworking guy because then he's kind of not going to be lazy and he's just going to do it, right? Um, but they're trying to say we have a process. We're trying to save our energy and, and whatnot. But we're going to see later, and this is where I, I think this image of Jacob is better fitting. We're going to see later that Jacob has an excellent mind for business and for keeping herds and sheep and for being strategic with it. Uh, and that we're going to see that he digs in and starts to serve Laban right off the bat. And he, his idea here right now is there's work to be done. Let's do the work, which is a great new believer thing to do. Where's the work? What can I do? How can I serve? We had a guy who was a professor at UW Madison, and I was so touched by this guy. He is in his 60s, 70s, and had just come to Christ. He was a biogeneticist, and the way he studied genetics and plants, he couldn't deny there was a God. So he started showing up to church going, I want to meet this God because there's no way this is accident. So he was one of kind of those converted scientists that studied natural science and then found God in that. So he's a brand new believer. And you'd think this guy, he's a PhD, he's world-class, he should be teaching, he should be doing all this. But his thing was he would come and help clean the bathrooms at the church. And then he would bring pies that he'd make from home for the meal afterwards. So he was the pie guy. You know, in the world, he's professor so-and-so that travels the world helping entire countries figure out how to grow potatoes in their country, right? He was that guy. But in the church, he was the pie guy and he cleaned the bathrooms. And he just took that on with joy and he filled that, because his thought was, where's the need in the church and what are the jobs that nobody else wants to do? Let me do those jobs and do them really well. Bobby Joe, you're cleaning restrooms right now. And that's... We need people in the church that do that kind of work too and do it with joy. And I can tell you, I can give testimony, that was a blessing to me to see this guy that was up here in the world, but in the church, he's just a humble guy doing his thing. And that was for us, that was like, that's how we want to be in the church. And we're, we're there now, they're always like, what can we have you do? And it's like, we don't want to presume anything or any position, we'll do whatever needs to be done. Where's the gap? Where's the jobs that nobody else wants to do? And God's been really good with that. 
because the job nobody else wants to do at our church is cover for Mike when he has to leave. So I actually do end up teaching, but I, I'd clean the bathrooms just as soon as I would teach. Whatever the church needs, I want to do it. Verse 9, now while he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. That wasn't uncommon. You Remember the shepherds, when we see David later, he's the youngest brother. It's not often the highest prestige people get to be the shepherds. It's the people that don't have another role, <laughs> right? It's the youngest sibling. And, and oftentimes, and shepherdesses were actually pretty common in ancient cultures. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went and near and rolled the stone from his well's mouth and watered the flock of his mother's brother. So this is kind of a feat of strength, and Jacob's no weakling here. Um, I don't think you need to interpret this much. He sees a good-looking girl, and he starts doing feats of strength. He's either trying to impress the young lady with, well, I'm just going to take a look at what a hard worker I am, uh, or he's so irritated with these shepherds that he's just going to do it himself. Um, because in verse 8, they said that they have to roll the stone away. So the fact that he does it by himself shows that this guy can move a rock all by himself. That's kind of impressive. I don't care how big the, even if the well was this big and the stone, I mean, the stone had to be big enough to keep the sunlight out. He's still, I don't even like to move the paver stones out here. And if I'm older and I get up in years, I'm going to feel that in the morning. Um, notice that it uses the phrase, his mother's brother three times. Uh, I think the writer wants us to be impressed that Jacob walks right up to the right family and there's no accidents here. Like just... And, and by the fact that they say his mother's brother, his mother's brother, that, wow, Jacob, actually, we should be like, wow, he landed right in the right place at the right time. And look who comes walking up is is not only um, the right person, but he's kind of impressed with this young Rachel. And uh, she's a looker. Remember, um, Sarah was a looker and Rebecca was a looker. And now we see that Rebecca caught the eye of this person, too. Um, we don't actually have photographs of any of these people. But I think sometimes when God is the right person for you, it really doesn't matter. To your eye, they're the right, they're the person. And there's something there. And I think to be attracted to somebody when you get married to them is probably an okay thing. You do want to start out that way. You should understand that at some point you'll both be 80 years old, not very good looking, and you should like each other at some other level too. Um, that's what I call the rocking chair rule. You should be ready to sit on a rocking chair in the backyard when you're 80 with that person. And that should be okay with you. But when you first get married, it's okay to think, yeah, I'd like the look of that person too. Um, the work of the believer is to feed sheep and to serve. That's what Jacob starts to do. Um, this is a key idea for a new believer. Um, and one way to thought then, and it, we see this in the New Testament too. We meet Jesus. We see that he's the way or the staircase. Then we get excited. We rejoice. And the next step should be get to work. And don't waste your time doing that. John 21, 17. And he said to them, he said the third time, Simon, son of Jodah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know what's inside my heart. What, what does Jesus say to him at that point? Feed my sheep. Get to work. Stop worrying about yourself and do the work that I have for you. Um, the next thing we're going to see is Jacob rejoices. He's super excited about Rachel, but he's got years of work ahead of him. And there's there's going to be fruit in those labors, but they'll take time. 
And then verse 11 is one of my favorite verses. Then he kissed Rachel and he lifted up his voice and wept. Exact same phrase as when Esau was lifted up his voice and wept with his dad because he didn't get the blessing. It's the exact same phrase here. When Jacob gets lifts up his voice so everybody can hear him, he's doing it because he's excited about the new bride that he has. So he, he kisses somebody and lifts his voice. Esau doesn't get something he wants and he lifts up his voice. Um, then you also think of this, again, put this in movie theater mode. This girl comes up with her sheep, probably dirty from the road, dusty, you know, lots of sheep that puts up these little billows of dust. She's icky. She's probably thirsty because it's watering time. And she walks up and some strange guy comes walking up and kisses because this is sexual harassment um, by our today's standards. Um, so <laughs> Jacob doesn't have the best social skills, which might be why he's gotten this late in life and hasn't quite found his bride. Um, so I just, anyway, on the other thought, if we're just reading the Bible for what it says, Jacob's got to be excited. Wow, I came across, I made this long journey. I was scared half the time. I see Jesus. I walk up to these shepherds and not only do they know Laban, I'm in the right place. They know Laban and where he's at. And then his daughter walks up and I think his daughter's beautiful. So love at first sight is truly what's going on here. That's not always the case in the Bible. So that's not a principle. Um, but in this case, it's love at first sight. And he wants to just shout in celebration. He shouts, yes, and he kisses the girl. Um, and my thought, if I'm personalizing that, is what is it in my life that makes me shout? If bitterness is what makes Esau shout and joy in the Lord and in his new bride is what makes Jacob shout, what's the thing that makes me yell and scream? And everybody has those things. And in our society, one of the biggest yelling and screaming things is a music concert. We yell and scream at music concerts. We also yell and scream at sporting events. And we yell and scream in politics. What makes you yell and scream? And is it the joy of the Lord? And is the joy of the Lord the thing that comes out of your mouth physically that makes you yell and do socially abnormal things where people have to look at you and say, wow, that person's not right in the head, right? Because we lose it when we yell and scream, right? We're, we're given to our emotions in that sense. And I don't think the faith is emotional at all. And you know that because you've been studying the Bible with me for a few months. But there are cases where your emotions should take over and that outpouring of joy should make you want to yell and scream. And think about what makes you yell and scream because everything else is the duller side of life. And if it's not the Lord that makes you yell and scream, why not? And what, how do you get to that point where that's what makes you yell and scream? Verse 12, Jacob told Rachel... So he kisses her first, then he tells her things. <laughs> Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebecca's son. So she ran and told her father. Now she's excited too. She ran and told her father, right? Um, back then it was, it wasn't, clearly it wasn't a bad thing to be this closely related. Today we'd be like, you know, this isn't the part of the country where we do that sort of thing. Uh, but here, that that's not the case with what's going on here. This is actually a good thing, as they tell each other. Then it came to pass, verse 13, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, and he embraced him, and he kissed him, and he brought him to the house, so he told Laban all things. This had to be kind of exciting for Laban. Oh, this is happening again. It's been almost 100 years since the love story with Rebecca and but remember Rebecca served 
Isaac's sheep and took care of them. And in this case, Jacob is the one that moves the stone off the well for Rachel. So clearly we're not talking about gender roles here. We're talking about this heart of service for each other that happens, but it's been a hundred years and the story's kind of similar. So this had to be exciting because this would have been a legend in their family at this point. Like, remember that time when Rebecca was swept off her feet and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and Laban was there for that. And Laban, <laughs> we're going to find that Laban likes money. And last time this happened, Laban and his father did very well financially out of it. There were camels of gear that went into their family. Um, this time, Jacob does not come with camels full of gear. He just comes with the clothes on his back. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month because they would have been sharing these stories for a month. They would have been, well, here's what happened on my side. And here's all that story on my side. So Jacob lives there. Apparently he's living there for free, but he's working there for free. But that hospitality has a limit to it. Um, the running shows the enthusiasm. And then in verse 15, it's been a month. And Laban says to Jacob, because you're my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? That's where it, it seems like Jacob just got to work for no pay. Isn't that a great career path? If you can just go to work for somebody and not need any money, we can't really do that in our society much anymore. But just to say, yeah, I'll carry your briefcase. I'll just serve. I'll shadow. I'll help out. Um, but at some point, Laban says, you're my relative. You can't just work here for free. Of course, he's not working there for free because he's getting fed and he's getting housed. So... That's not, that's a pretty good deal because he was homeless before this. Tell me, what should your wages be? Um, another thought is this sounds like Laban is being really kind. You can just read it that way. Um, a lot of commentaries would say he's trying to establish the roles of in my house, you're a servant. You're not my, you know, it's been a month, but if you want to stay here in this house, you're my servant. You're not a prince when you come to my tent. You're not the inheritor of my blessing. You're going to take a paycheck because then you're an employee. So that's another way to read what Laban's doing here. Um, either way, it's a demotion for Jacob. Um, I like to just take the Bible as it is because I just want to see what it has to say. It implies that Jacob's been working for nothing, and I like that idea. It implies that Jacob takes on this work to either impress, serve, or help Laban, and that Laban sees value in that work, and he's going to start paying Jacob for that work. So now Jacob gets a job. It's like a children's book. Jacob gets a job. Um, Jacob is not homeless anymore. And Jacob now has his first job and he's working at it. Now Laban had two daughters, verse 16. The, the name of the elder was Leah, which means cow or antelope. Take that how you want. And the name of the younger was Rachel, which means you or lamb. Take that how you want. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and of appearance. Now is a poetical word. Verse 14 starts with the word now. We've seen that a few times. Um, the now implies that we're about to see a parenthesis or a comment. Like this is supposed to educate us on what's motivating the people in the story. So what's motivating the next part of the story is that Leah the cow and Rachel the ewe are very different in appearance. And that was a motivational factor for what's going on here. Um, it's a very kind way to say that maybe Leah wasn't as attractive as Rachel. Some even say that the, the eyes were delicate. The word delicate is a pretty good translation. It means weak or not strong. 
Um, and it might have meant that Leah had bad eyesight. Um, so she had big Coke bottle glasses, you know, or she had a lazy eye. Could have been another way to interpret that same passage. Um, and in the same sentence, it uses the word but, or there's a contrast in the Hebrew. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. So those are set up as opposites. Um, the word rack, that ten, the, the delicate, that Hebrew word is R-A-K, rack. Um, that there's something going on there that makes her there. Another way to think of this is the first person Jacob saw was Rachel. He fell in love with Rachel. She's the one that caught his eye, and she's the one that she's interested in. I still remember, because I was old-fashioned, I asked uh, Sherm, Steph's dad, if I could marry his daughter. And the, have I told you this story before? The first thing, so I take him out to dinner. I'm like, Sherm, I'd like to marry your daughter, and I'd like to ask for her hand in marriage, but I want your blessing before I do that. And I, we worked together. I mean, I knew he was going to give me the blessing, but I wanted to be formal about it. And he just looked at me straight, and he goes, you know, tradition says I should marry the eldest daughter first. Would you take Lene? And I'm like, I just couldn't. I mean, I was a young guy. Did you ever know this story? Uh-uh. I, I couldn't believe he was saying what he just said to me. And I was like, no. And then he just starts laughing. He's like, I, I know, I'm just kidding. Because I didn't been dating stuff for some time at that point. Um, but oh, how history could have played out differently in our family. Um, and uh, I, to some extent, I think that's part of what's going on here too. This is showing the motivation of Laban and why he did what he did. But I don't think it shows the motivation of Jacob. I think Jacob fell in love with Rachel. And when he wanted to get the daughter's hand in marriage, um, he was looking for, for Rachel. Verse 18 backs that up. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So there's two nows, verse 16 and verse 18. The first now, I think, is this is what Laban is doing. And the second now in verse 18 is this is Jacob's motivation in the story. So that sets us up so we can see the next scene in the, in the, in the narrative. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I'll serve you for seven years for Rachel your younger daughter. He's being very clear here. And Laban said, it's better, because you know where this story is going, right? Okay. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. What a horrible thing to say for a dad. Eh, it's better I give her to you than somebody else. Like, yeah, I can see that. So you can stay here. And so Jacob served for seven years for Rachel. By any terms in any economy, seven years worth of labor that's a lot of work. Even if you make like 50 grand in our economy, that's like $350,000 worth of labor. That's a pretty good deal for Laban, right? Especially because he's an expert herdsman. He knows how to care for entire organizations. Like Jacob brings some talent to the table here. So Laban's getting a great deal. So Jacob served, verse 20, for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. This is not a knock against Leah. This is that he really loves Rachel. And even though they're sisters, they're different people. So I had no interest in Lene. She's a nice person. She's a good aunt for my children. But I loved Stephanie, and that makes a huge difference. So it seemed like only a few days. And I think young men of like th- are like this. Men of character will do amazing amounts of labor with total joy and enthusiasm. And it doesn't really feel like work because you know why you're doing the work. The second the why goes away, that work feels like pain and agony. And it treads on every day like this 
grind that you have to go through. And I don't think that's just unique of young men, but it is when young men are trying to find a bride. Um, so um, we see that seven years there. This is way more than a normal dowry. Um, and I think Jacob's being generous here because he'll give whatever it takes to get Rachel. And we have an image of Christ. Christ would give anything for his bride. The price doesn't matter. What's the price? I'll pay it. Um, and it feels like only a few days. True love, and I think this is really important for young people, true love can wait for marriage. It doesn't, there's no time limit on that. If it's worth it and if it's precious, it can wait. And those kinds of things are there. And us adults keep saying that and the next generation always ignores it. Um, and then you find a few rare people that actually do wait. Um, but that piece of intimacy when you wait for it, it gains value. Value is both the price of something and the worth of something. And if it has high worth and it has high value, it's worth waiting for. Um, so it only gains when you do that kind of thing. Um, sex then becomes a way of saying, I love you to another person. But if it's given away easily, or if it isn't meaningful, or if it comes at too low of a price, it's not a very big, I love you. Right? And that's what a lot of people in the world start to see is that they even disassociate that intimacy of marriage from love altogether. Like they don't go together. But in the Bible, they clearly do have some relationship to each other and they're connected. So a servant of God will labor for years for the kingdom of heaven because we serve with hope. Right? And that's something where we'll clean the toilets at the church because we have hope in an eternal heaven. It's the spiritual thing that draws us out. And the same thing's true when we're looking for that relationship. And I don't think this is just marriage. I think this is friendship too. A good friend is worth investing in. It's worth the time to go out for breakfast once a week with a good friend because you're investing in eternity with that person. You're not just going out for breakfast. There's a better, there's a bigger meaning to what you're doing. It's worth serving in ministries on the campus. It's worth serving in ministries of the church. And we do those things with joy, not because we need something in return, but because we're waiting for that reward in heaven and we want to be as close to heaven as we can get. Luke 9, 23 says, And he said to them all, If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's not the promise of a joyful, happy, skippy life. That's taking up a cross, an instrument of death and torture. But we'll do that because we're looking forward to heaven. And Christians throughout history have done these amazing things in the service to Christ. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I might go into her. I looked that up too and I wish I hadn't. It means exactly what it sounds like. Verse 22, and Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. It's not easy, it's not easy here. Um, Laban's doing, when he gathers all the men of together to make a feast, a wedding in this culture would have been a, a seven day feast. And the first night is the consummation of the marriage, but then that couple hosts for the rest of the week. So when you gather everybody together, the woman that you go to bed with on the first night, it's pretty hard to cast that person off because you've consummated the marriage. And once that marriage is consummated, that bride shouldn't be married to anyone else. So that sets up what Laban's about to do here. Now it came to pass in the evening that he, Laban, took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, wake up and look who's now next to you. It was Leah. 
And he said to Laban, what have you done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? Everybody sees the, uh, the perfect justice here, right? This is exactly what Jacob did to his dad. He went in, consummated a blessing or a marriage or a covenant, and he did it under deceptive guile and dressed up as somebody else. This is exactly what Laban and Leon have done. In the same sense, Laban is the one that's considered guilty here. This is why way back in the day I said, I think Rebecca's the one that's guilty here because she commanded Jacob to do this. Notice that, Le- that Leah would have had the lie too because you don't go into wedding night and not have some deception going on there, right? Um, so she was complicit in this, but really Laban is held accountable for it because she's obeying her father. I also think it's interesting. Remember, we don't have the law yet. There's this instinctual part of human nature that knows fidelity is important. Like you're supposed to tell me the truth. And when you lie to me, that's not good. Where do we get that from? Right? It didn't come from our animal nature. It came from something in us where there's a law written on our heart that you shouldn't deceive people. You shouldn't say one thing and do another. And I think it's interesting that there's this assumption here that, that that's the case. Um, and I think often in our culture, the media scripts and paints a very different picture um, that you can do these kinds of things and the life will still turn out okay. But obviously that's not the case. Jacob's just been robbed of his fidelity for Rachel. He was waiting seven years for Rachel. And now he just had sex with another woman and he was deceived into doing this. The deception's not that hard for me. People are like, well, how does that happen? Laban has a plan. He gathers a crowd. He puts really heavy tent material on there. He waits for a dark night. Um, the veil would have been a total covering veil um, over over Leah. Um, so there would have been lots of alcohol served at this feast. Um, so the, the senses aren't all there. Um, either way, I, I, it, it's one of those things like, how did Jacob not know? Because he hasn't lain with either one of them before, right? And he, there's, so there's a lot that he wouldn't have known. Um, and, uh, and Leah could have kept her veil on right through the whole evening and, and that sort of thing too. God has a way of bringing justice to his children. Jacob did this to his father. Now it's getting done to him. He's got to figure that out. In Galatians 6, it says, do not be deceived. We shouldn't misunderstand this concept. God is not to be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will shall also reap. For he who sows of the flesh will reap will will the flesh reap corruption. And he who sows of the spirit of the spirit will reap everlasting life. There's a law in the universe here that has nothing to do with our Christianity. If we lie to people, there's going to be something where we get lied to back. There's a Buddhist principle that the universe will give things back to you. And it's not far from this concept. The, the things you do in life tend to come back to you. If you complain about people a lot, people are going to probably complain about you. And there's just going to be this kind of symmetry to how things work. So God chooses Jacob. God loves Jacob. There's no doubt about that at this point. God's spoken to Jacob. But God's first thing, as Jacob gets to work, God's first thing with a new believer is he starts to dis- discipline and train that new believer. And he starts to bring Jacob face to face with those matters of the heart that he needs to deal with. So this is a heart matter. Leah's probably following Laban's plan, just like Jacob followed Rebecca's plan, but it's no excuse. Remember, Rebecca and Laban are their siblings. You wonder what Rebecca and Laban's parents were like. 
because they've raised two kids that do this kind of nonsense. Uh, it's a family trait. They, he shouldn't have been surprised. Um, and Laban has flat out lied to him at this point. So he gives Zilpah and Bilhah, Laban, uh, remember when Sarah went, uh, went off, she was given a whole escort of servants, like multiple servants. Laban gives one. And so this isn't like, look how generous Laban is. I think this is, look what a cheapskate Laban is. He only gives them one servant. Um, so verse 26, I'll keep going. And Laban said, it must not be done. It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. This is the principle, if you remember, of primogeniture, the idea that you have to give away the firstborn first. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me with still another seven years. You'd think Jacob would complain. You'd think he'd protest. But look at the next verse. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. Um, the week there is Shavua. It's a heptad. It's actually a count of seven days. So we saw the term day or yom getting used in Genesis 1. Remember we had that whole discussion of what a yom was? It was a a day, a sunrise to sunset. Um, and here we see a different word, shavua, which actually means a count of seven. So there's actually an amount. So a shavua can either be a week, seven days, or it can be a period of seven years. And it's not clear to me entirely. So if the wedding was one week, Laban could be saying, why don't you finish the week with Leah? And then I'll give you Rachel at the end of the week. You can have both wives within a week. Or he's saying, finish another seven years for Rachel, and I'll give you Rachel at the end of another seven years, which is really bad form, and Jacob has every reason to protest here. Um, but we we um, we see Jacob just doing the, just submitting to it and doing the work. And, and I think that's where maybe he, he gets what God's doing in his life. This is the first use of the word Shavua for week. But it's not the last. There's a whole feast of weeks that will be part of Jewish tradition. Um, that gets that's a seven-day feast, uh, and that's how it gets used pretty consistently, is in the sense of a 24-hour day, not a year. So finish up the seven-day week, you get Rachel, or you can finish another seven years and get Rachel. I don't think it changes the meaning of the passage that much, just the implication of what's going on. This time, notice the time does not go by in a flash. Jacob's just working now. That had to be tough. This is. This is a time where Jacob's just swallowing his pride, fulfilling these obligations, um, and he has to keep his humility. So he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as a wife also. Uh, so we see polygamy again. Looking forward, this is not going to work out again. Um, and Laban gave his maid, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as a maid. And then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. So this is the core problem with polygamy. It's not like we need to get into polygamy much in the U.S. We don't do much of it. Um, but there are a lot of cultures that have. And, and part of why we don't do polygamy is the influence of the Judeo and Christian traditions, is that the Bible is pretty clear that this isn't the intention that God has. So this isn't condoning of polygamy. It's actually the result of sin. Um, and it's going to be a struggle label. There's no blessing in this for Jacob. It's only going to be trouble for him later on. In fact, consistently the Bible, polygamy is always trouble for the people that get into it. It never works. Um, so it's a lot like the Bible records it, but it doesn't approve of it. So it's the same thing with sin. The Bible records that there is sin, but that's not condoning of it. Um, and this is a discussion I would have with my Mormon friends. 
because they'd say, well, there's polygamy in the Old Testament. Yeah, but the, read the Old Testament. It's not that it's a good thing or that God wants that to happen. It's it's a bad thing in the Bible. So, and he served Laban with still another seven years. Um, this is tough when we go into trial, trials. One of we we just heard this this morning in our service. Uh, uh, one of the first things we tend to do when we get into a trial or a tough situation is we look for our way out of it. What's the first path I, I can take to run? And I love that Jacob doesn't run here. He just stays another seven years and he works it out. Um, and there's going to be a great blessing in the fact that he's not being sent away. He's not getting stoned. So he's going to stay and he's going to do his work. This is where God brought him. There's no doubt in his mind. This is where God put him. So he's just going to stay there and endure. He's going to serve. He's going to work. He's going to take care of some sheep. Um, and he's going to earn respect and favor with everybody around him when he does that. It's the endurance of trials that gains our credibility with the people around us. It's not what we look like when things are going great. It's what we look like when things are going horrible that gains our credibility and reputation. He's not taking any shortcuts like he tried with his own dad. So we have seen growth with Jacob. He is hurting. He is not managing. There are no schemes. There's nothing to write home about. There is 14 years of steady service from Jacob that we see nothing about. And I think those periods in the Bible are kind of amazing when you see these characters where they're just doing their job for 14 years. And we think, wow, God's got to be speaking to me. No, 14 years goes by and he's just taking care of sheep because that's where God put him. He knows God put him here. So he's going to do this for 14 years. And I think that's kind of, I learned from that because sometimes there's a grind to academic work. Another book, another article to write, another research, another interview to do, another class to prep. And there's this grind, but if I believe this is where God put me, then God put me here. I should do that work and dig into it and try to do it with as much joy as I can. Back to the core thesis of the book. God has promised a savior from the children of Eve. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, that word actually means hated. Um, he was, She was not liked. And you've got to imagine that Jacob was pretty bitter about this. Like, There's no trust with Leah right off the bat because she lied to him. She was complicit in this thing where um, he gave away his, his purity to her um, and wasn't able to keep it for Rachel. So there's a hatred there. He opened her. So when God saw that Leah was unloved or hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben. Behold a son. For she said, the Lord has surely looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. She's looking to her husband and not to God. Verse 33, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means to hear. And then she conceived again and bore a son and now said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, this one I will call Levi, which means my nephew. It actually means attached. Did you know that? Yeah. Okay. And then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah, praise. And then she stopped bearing. Um, I'm just reading 31 on. I'm gonna, I just read that through because I kind of wanted to finish the chapter. But I'm really going to reread that next week when we come back to this because I'm going to do all 12 sons and look at them as one whole picture. I have no idea why they put the chapter divider here, but I know chapter dividers aren't biblical. It's just somebody put it there for some reason that was in their head. But I have no idea why you divide up the 12 sons. Um, two thoughts before we walk away from these. 
Um, and I think this is cool. We'll come back to these thoughts. Notice that the first three sons are all about Leah. I have, um, I have, uh, um, maybe he'll love me now, and now God has heard me, and now my white husband will be attached to me because I made this new baby. But then with Judah, she just praises the Lord. That me, me, me stuff goes away by the fourth son. Leah grows up and matures a little bit. It's not about her husband's affection. It's not about getting attention. It's just, I just want to praise the Lord. And Judah is going to be that core theme thesis. It'll be from Judah that the seed of Messiah will come from. Not the firstborn. Uh, the fourthborn, actually, will be that one. And the priesthood's going to come from Levi. So we see these kind of two sons that become the kingly the kingly leadership will come from Judah and the priestly leadership will come from Levi but they're again they're not the firstborn sons they're the ones God picks God's going to handpick them and he'll continue to handpick them um, and that'll be kind of that's where we'll pick up next time but we'll look at all 12 sons because at this point the core theme of the book is God is going to build a nation and these are the tribes of Israel so and Jacob will become Israel and his name will change just like Abraham's name changed that's what we have so let's say we'll quick prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simple truths that are in it, Lord. And, and um, Lord, I just pray that you honor our inquiry and our question of what it means. And Lord, I just pray that nobody takes my word for it, that we study the word for ourselves, that we have opinions about what it's saying, that we can share those opinions openly, that we can question with a heart for understanding, because Lord, we love you. And we want to know what your plan was. We want to know what you had to say to us. We want to know what lessons we can glean from every chapter and every passage. And we're so glad that we can do that, Lord, that we have your word, um, that we don't need to listen for you um, on, by a rock, with a rock by our head. That we can, if we want to hear from you, Lord, we just read what you say. And that we believe these are your words. And we want to take them into our heart. We want to write them on our hearts so that they're there when we go through trials and tribulations. Lord, as with what Jacob's going through as a new believer, help us to be enthusiastic and to be joyful. And Lord, help us to endure anything because we too want our, to be married to you. Uh, we want your kingdom. We want to focus on heavenly things and spiritual things. Uh, and Jacob, in following his father's command to go find a wife, uh, we too, Lord, we just we want to follow your command uh, to go find our life and to do what you have for us. We want our lives to have meaning because you've given them meaning, not because we've worked for it or we've been clever or we've sorted something out, but Lord, we've just humbly committed to the work and we've submitted to it because our eyes are on what you have prepared for us and what you're doing for us. Lord, we know you have a plan for our lives. You've promised that. You've said it. So Lord, help us work as though that promise is real um, and that everything we're doing is part of what you want us to be doing. Lord, if we're not where you want us to be, then help us to listen to your word and your command to submit and humble ourselves to your law and what you've commanded us to do. If we have a belief or a thought in our head, Lord, that isn't aligned with what you say in your word, help us to be humble enough to correct it. Don't let us be like Esau, where we bitterly double down on our mistakes. But Lord, help us to be humble and obedient like Jacob. And when we're told to move, we move. Uh, and we go after what you tell us to go after. And you've been really clear. We're supposed to go after justice and mercy and grace. We're supposed to go after our neighbor as though we were trying to serve ourselves. Uh, Lord, we're supposed to um, teach the word to all nations. 
and to share our love of the gospel with other people. Lord, help us to be so excited about what we read and we study in the word that we want to tell people about it. And that it's not fake. We're not doing it as some sort of mission that we've put upon ourselves. But Lord, it's just an abounding joy that we can't help but tell other people about. And Lord, we just love you for that. We thank you for that. And help us to uh, to learn to shout for things that are of heavenly importance and not things that are of earthly insignificance. Help our joy to be in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.